It's a privilege to be with you, and uh, it really is the honor of my life. I was thinking this morning of the story I've heard uh, maybe a couple times of an uh, uh, English, I think, schoolmaster, as the story's told, who began each day by bowing to his class. And he said his reasoning for that was he didn't know what level of greatness and what future uh, prime minister or, or, or leader was there that he had the chance to serve. And I really do count it a privilege to serve you. And uh, you make it fun and rewarding and profitable. And I uh, just love to be uh, have a chance to be with you in chapel today. If you have a Bible with you, go to Isaiah chapter number 55, please. Uh, Dr. Getch asked me to preach in chapel, and I had immediately uh, something that I knew I wanted to preach, and I realized that I was, I was immediately going to the writings of Paul, and I thought back, and I, I realized I've preached from Paul for a good number of the last couple of times that I was in chapel. Last time I was in chapel, I preached on eat your own bread, remember that? That was last, uh, last semester, eat your own bread, talked about work ethic. And I really felt convicted. I needed to be in the Old Testament today. And uh, it's all God's word. It's all inerrant and inspired. And I believe the Lord led me to Isaiah chapter number 55, which is just a high water mark in the Old Testament in learning about God and his work among us and his people extended to us through Jesus Christ. Uh, I'm going to read the first verse, and then we'll have a word of prayer, and then we're basically going to walk through the passage. Somebody told me a while back, don't preach a verse, always preach a passage. And uh, I told Dr. Getch this morning, I don't know that I've ever preached with him here. He probably remembers, maybe there's been a time or two, sometimes he's on the road. And uh, I, I, I listened, and I studied, and I, I learned all that he taught me in class, and it helped me so much, and, and I'll try to do some of that today. I think I may miss a few. If you are grading me on the preaching contest, I may miss a thing here or there, but I know this, you're not going to find a better text uh, than the Word of God to preach from. That's what our goal is this morning, and Isaiah 55 in particular. Let's read verse number one, then we'll have a word of prayer. The Bible says, Ho! Everyone that thirsteth, let's say ho together, ready? Ho, what does that mean? That means, hey, pay attention. This is something you've got to hear. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye and buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we want to thank you this morning for all that you've done in our lives. Thank you, Lord, for gathering us together yet again in this auditorium, in this building where probably for everyone in this room and certainly for myself, there have been so many decisions and so many good memories and so many things that I can look back to and recall that you did in my heart and in my life. And Lord, your word is the basis for that. And yet this is a place where a lot of that happened in my life and in the lives of many of us here. So Lord, we just come before you again today. And we ask that yet again today that you would take your word and apply it to our lives and to our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would give me the ability to do justice to the text here that we have before us this morning. And Father, I pray that you would use this passage in our lives and may all that we do be done for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Isaiah is a prophet who lives in the 8th century before Christ. He is, of course, in the days of uh, Uzziah. He lived and overlapped with Amos the prophet. He, at the end of his ministry, was serving under Hezekiah the king. He often also overlapped with Micah and Hosea. This is a very dangerous, a very uh, fraught century for the children of Israel. This is a time when the Assyrian Empire was bearing down. In fact, during Isaiah's lifespan, 
He would see the fall of the northern kingdom and the captivity as the Assyrians took over the northern ten tribes of Israel. He's in Judah, and he's prophesying to a group of people that are legitimately scared, and for good reason. The Assyrians are coming down. They come from a distant enemy to right to their doorstep. After the northern tribes fell, they were literally sharing a border with this very hostile, very cosmopolitan, very pagan, and a very dangerous enemy. Isaiah is here speaking uh, first warning. The first uh, book's broken down into two, at least two, maybe three sections. The first section kind of mirrors the Old Testament. If you've ever studied Isaiah, you have 66 books in Isaiah. Book uh, chapters, rather, chapter 1 through 39 is like the Old Testament. And that passage, that first part of the book of Isaiah, we see he is warning here. Israel, or the Israel goes into captivity. Judah is standing there in fear and trembling. Now right at their border, they have the Assyrian Empire and during this time, Isaiah is helping them understand their danger. They're, they're experiencing this judgment because of their rebellion against God. Of course, there's hope in that. He talked about the, the sign that would come. He talked about the one that would be born of a virgin in Isaiah chapter 7, verse number 14, and Isaiah chapter number 9. And throughout this passage, we see God. We learn about God's work, but we see that God is judging his people. Once you get to chapter number 40 and on, the message shifts. It goes from focusing on the Assyrian Empire to looking forward to the, well, the Babylonian captivity. Because where Isaiah is, they too will go into captivity. Not to the Assyrians, as happened first to the northern tribes, but to Babylon, which would happen later to Judah. And of course, that's where much of the Old Testament traces that story. And then they come back. We know the uh, return to the land. This is prophesied by Isaiah. Isaiah knows that God's going to do this even after the Babylonian captivity. He names Cyrus the king who is going to give a proclamation to go back and to rebuild the temple. And we see this in Isaiah 44 and 45. We know that this happened. We see it in scripture. That's good enough. We know it from history. In fact, the cylinder of Cyrus records this. It's in the British Museum in London, England today. And you can go and you can see the etching of this king. And it was his policy to build back up the, the temples of the conquered people that were under him in order to gain favor of those foreign gods. So for that reason, he, among other people, he told God's people to go back and finance the rebuilding of the temple and then there were other waves that came back after cyrus defeated babylon it's all it's all in scripture all foretold by isaiah well by the time you get to where we are isaiah chapter 53 you're familiar with this is the suffering servant we see this as a picture of christ of course isaiah is talking about the people of israel he's talking about israel as a nation and yet we see a singular application to that we'll see that in this passage as well through the seed of David, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. In, that's chapter 53. In chapter 54, we see a picture of, of Jerusalem, of the uh, habitation of the children of God as being prosperous and being restored and gathering of a people, of God's people. And then in chapter number uh, 55, where we are today, we see that God gives us incredible invitation. This is an invitation, of course, that shows that God is drawing people to himself throughout the Old Testament. And we see uh, the prophecy of the Messiah. We see the prophecy of the restoration of God's people. And then here in, verse, in chapter number 55, we see this proclamation. Oh, 
And then there's an offer to come. You see that word come multiple times in this first verse. We see this incredible description, this gift of God that he offers to those that would come. He says, first, everyone that thirsteth, this is a universal invitation, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. We know in the New Testament, Christ described himself as this. It was a Samaritan woman that he met at the well after he passed through that way that was, for perhaps good reason, avoided by some of the Orthodox and the faithful Jews, uh, perhaps a prejudice and a bias, but also uh, a disdain for a people that hadn't kept themselves pure ethnically or even religiously. And yet Jesus goes to Samaria and he tells the woman at the well that he is the water that will cause us to never thirst again. God here offers in the Old Testament, come to me all who are thirsting and drink of the water. Have you ever been really, really thirsty? Happens out here in the desert all the time. If you're here in the fall, Dr. Getch will tell you, drink lots of water the first week. He'll say probably every day in chapel. Because if you come from a place that's not the desert, you get dehydrated very, very quickly. And, and you've got to drink a lot of water. And here's what, here's what God is saying. Come to me. I have the water. I have the resources that you need. Verse number one continues. He says, uh, he that hath no money, come ye and buy and eat. What an incredible offer. Have you ever been to a place where people are calling to you to come? I remember when Brother Montano was here in Lancaster, a group of us years ago now went down to do a little bit of a missions trip. Uh, drove down to San Diego, drove down into Mexico, stayed with some great Christians and saw some good churches. And, and I remember one of the days we went to the the blowhole, I think it was the bufador, bufadora, something like that. Uh, some of you know it better than I. And went to that place. It was a very popular place for tourists. They had a lot of, of kind of uh, colored curtains and awnings on the path where you walked. And there were merchants there. They had, they had Rolex watches for $20. And they had Oakley sunglasses for $7 or 4 for 20 And they had all of these wares there. Some of them were traditional. Some of them were knockoff. They had all of these things. And if you've ever walked through a place like that, you know what it's like to have lots of people calling for your attention. Standing in front of you, trying to get you to come in, trying to lure you into the shop, trying to put their beers in your hand and then demanding the money that you would give them to pay for it. And they're very aggressive sometimes. You ever in a place like that? Yeah. They're right in front of you. They're making sure you don't walk by without noticing. They want you to buy what they have. And that's kind of the urgency of this passage. God is standing here and he's, Isaiah uh, is giving God's message here that you don't want to walk past this. You need what we have. You've got to stop. He's calling them in. Come, come, come. And yet he says he's selling his wares without any money to those that have no money at all. What an incredible what an incredible blend of grace here. You see a complete provision, completely free. And here in this passage, we see this picture of the graciousness of God. He says to come, if you have no money, and buy and eat, come, he says, and buy wine and milk without money and without price. Wine and milk are not the beverages for those who are scrimping. These are not the beverages for those who are uh, being frugal with their money. 
I'm a, I'm a dollar menu guy at fast food restaurants. I'm a, a frugal guy if I'm uh, spending money. I've got to, I, I, I watch my pennies. I, I keep a budget. Maybe you're like that, or maybe your parents are like that. And you know what it's like to have somebody, you know, you can't get that. You, you go out to a restaurant, you can get a meal, but you can't get maybe a, a soda or something like that. That's a rule for our kids. We do it all the time. I tell them it's for their health. It's also for the health of my pocketbook, right? Because $4 for a glass of Sprite, what in the world? So we'll, we'll, we'll do without that. But, but here's, here's what we see in this passage. God is not telling us to give up luxury and to come to poverty. God is not telling us to give up uh, plenty and to come to meager fare. God is not telling us to give up a vibrancy and to instead take austerity. God is not asking us to give up a whole life that is rich and in exchange it for a, a, a sure life, a meager life that is scrimping. It is, the, it is the blessed life that he's recommending. It is the, the best wares that he is offering. It is the only thing that will satisfy that God is giving. He's not trying to trick you, young person. He's trying to bless you. And he's telling his people that whatever it is that's pulling you aside, whatever it is that's trying to get you in another direction, it's not what you actually want. The good stuff is right here. The fact that I'm not charging for it doesn't mean it's not priceless. The fact that there's not a cost doesn't mean to you, doesn't mean that it has no worth. This is the good stuff that God is offering, and he's offering it for free. And he's calling out ho in the way. He's getting our attention. He's asking us to come. Verse number two describes the prophet's bewilderment at those that would refuse. He wonders at why we would spend our money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which satisfies not. Have you done that? Have you worked towards something and found that it didn't satisfy what you really wanted? Have you spent your effort towards something and found it didn't get you what you desired? Do you remember the people that were so important to you in seventh grade? Do you remember them? Do you remember the people that were cool? Do you remember the people that were athletic? Do you remember the people whose opinions mattered? Do you remember the people who, who, who controlled kind of the social world that were at the top of the food chain? And do you remember doing some things perhaps in that setting to get ahead or to get in with the right crowd or to be on the inside only to find out it really wasn't what you sought anyway? You ever seen somebody starting out in a career and they'll do the extra hour, they'll do the two extra hours, meanwhile their, their family back home is missing them, meanwhile their spiritual life is atrophying, meanwhile their Bible sits and collects dust on the shelf, but they're giving the extra hour and the extra two hours and the extra day in the office, and what are they doing? They're giving and they're investing and they're buying and they're spending, but not for that which satisfies. They're wasting their life. And Isaiah says, why would you give your life? Why would you give your resource to that which doesn't satisfy? I'm here to tell you this morning, God satisfies. Amen. And God alone satisfies. Again, he's not trying to trick you. He's trying to bless you. He asked, why would you spend for that which is not bread and labor for that which satisfies not? Hearken diligently unto me. Eat that which is good. Let your soul delight itself in fatness. That is the rich food. Hey, delight yourself in the rich food. Isn't that a good admonition? Hey, go ahead and order the steak. Go ahead and get a side of cheesecake at the end. Go ahead and, and, and eat the good food, the rich food. And I know maybe that's not the good food for you here, but how many of you, if it was healthy and it tasted like that, that'd be the way to go, right? 
And that's what God is offering. He, he, he gives blessing and adds no sorrow with it. He says, hey, I, I'm inviting you to the best wares. Have you ever been in a place where you could pick up anything you wanted and it was all good food and it was just, it was just there? We, don't, we haven't done this a whole lot. In fact, one time in my life is all, but for our 10th anniversary, my wife and I booked a uh, cruise. And maybe you've been on a cruise, maybe you've heard people talk about cruises, and it, it, it was fun. We had a blast. I had a blast because I was spending time with my wife. Uh, it was the best part of it. And uh, yet, it was like a two or three day, just a little loop out here from Long Beach down to uh, Mexico and back, and, and it was a lot of fun. But it is true. If you ever eat on a cruise, you go, and they've got... Uh, Decadence. They have incredible food, and they have 24-hour, uh, always-open buffets, and at least the carnival ship that we were on, and I think most of them do. There's always food. It's as much as you can eat. It's always good. You've already paid for it. There's no price for it. It's just, it's just there. You can just, just keep eating and keep eating and keep eating, and eventually you know you should stop. <laughs> and God is offering to us here this unlimited, fully satisfying, right nutrients for our soul and he offers it to us we see where this blessing comes from in verse number three incline your ear and come unto me and hear your soul shall live and i will make an everlasting covenant with you even the sure mercies of david hey this is god making good on his promise remember god's promise to abraham in genesis chapter number 12 where God promised to Abraham that he would raise him up, that he would bless him, that he would through him be a blessing to other people. But that promise that Abraham, that was forever, the promise that God made to his people, the land, the seed, and the blessing, it was unconditional, it was eternal, it was literal. And here God is referencing back to that. In 2 Samuel chapter number 12, we see this repeated. To David, this is the promise. God's fulfilling his promise to Abraham through David. And he promises to David that your throne will never end and your reign will never cease and your, your heirs will, will be the, the ruler that will be lifted up. And through that, God will be glorified. And of course, we know that this is fulfilled through Christ. In fact, we see not only that Christ is referenced from this passage in uh, Acts chapter number 13, just two New Testament passages to pull in. Paul here, the rabbi who converted to Christianity in, in Acts 13, 24, he reasons with the Jews in Antioch, and here's what he says to them. As concerning, he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption. He said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. How many of you recognize God was merciful to David? How many of you recognize God's grace is seen in his covenants? How many of you recognize that God is not going to break that word which he's given? And then we see this further. Uh, Paul again in Galatians chapter number 3. Paul is saying, To Abraham and to his seed were these promises made. And he said not to seeds as many, but as one to thy seed which is Christ. Now, the Jews could claim to be the, the children of Abraham, and rightly so, on a biological sense. They, in fact, some of them would be the seed of David. But what Paul has said, says, if you read closely, it's not seeds like many. It's seed. It's singular. It's talking about the ultimate fulfillment, the consummation of this, which comes through Christ. He promises here this mercy of David. Behold, I'll give unto him, again, singular here in verse number 4. 
I give unto him for a witness to the people, a leader, a commander of the people. Behold, thou shalt, be called a thou shalt call a nation that thou knowest not. And nations that knew thee not shall run unto thee because of the Lord thy God. For the Holy One of Israel, for he hath glorified thee. Why? Because God's glorified thee. God's plan in the Old Testament was to take a people and to raise them up. We read about this in Deuteronomy chapter number 28. He says, if you do these things which I command you, I will take you and I will lift you above all nations of the earth. And what's the outcome of that? Here's the outcome. All nations are to come to you. They're to stream into you. He just talked about that in the previous chapter after the restoration and the gathering. And he says these nations are to stream in unto you. And that's really the model in the Old Testament. The model in the Old Testament is, is that God is pulling people to himself through his people. By the way, in the New Testament, there's almost an inversion of that because God says to his people, go and tell. In the New Testament, in the Old Testament, it's come and see. Like the Queen of Sheba or many other people who came, who was drawn by the sure mercies of David. We see in the first past passage of this chapter an incredible gift. This is God's gift. It is a free gift. It is one that is offered to all who would come. But then, in the next couple of verses here, we see that there is a specific group of people that this gift is for. In fact, the hint has already been given in verse number one. Look at verse number one. The Bible says, Ho to everyone that, what's the next word? This is only for a certain group of people. Everyone, that sounds like it's all-inclusive, but it's everyone who has a particular characteristic, everyone who thirsteth. See, you had to come. You had to be thirsty. You had to want it. Look at verse number six. He describes the group that this gift is given to. He says, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, for he will have mercy upon him, and our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Do you realize that the blessings of God are to draw us to himself? And here's the command. This is not an option. This is not uh, an additional section that you can get. This is the command of God is to come to him and to come to him those that are thirsty. You know, one of the things that I'm afraid of in our society, if we're not careful, is we can become not thirsty. If we're not careful, we can not be those that hunger and thirst after righteousness, as Christ said. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about me. It's so easy for me to get so full of my schedule and so full of what I have to do and even so satisfied with maybe what I've done or what I have or the life that God's given me. If I'm not careful, I'll lose the hunger. I'll lose the thirst. I'll lose the craving. If I'm not careful, even after knowing the Lord for a while, I'll lose my sense of complete dependence on Him. And what Isaiah is telling his people here is you need to come and you need to be that thirsty person. By the way, I don't think that that stops once you found the Lord. That's something that should drive us as a Christian because that source that we have in God is beginning at salvation through life. I need God's grace every day. And there's three very clear commands here that we see in verse number six and seven. The first one he says is to seek and then to call 
and then to repent. There's something that's a little bit unnerving in this passage to me. In verse number 6, he says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Does that imply that there's a time God can't be found? The verse continues and he says, Call upon him while he is near. Does that imply that there's a time that God is not going to be near? I've lived too long to assume that every moment that we have of drawing to the Holy Spirit, we can count on another one. I've seen too many people struggle with whether or not to take the step to respond to the invitation, to come as God commanded and instructed, who resisted that over and over and over, always presuming I can do it another day, always presuming I'm always going to be this near to a decision. Always presuming I can come back and I can do it anytime I want. Here's the problem. You may never want to again. God is calling to his people and he's telling them, don't miss the moment of decision. Don't miss the moment of drawing. Don't flippantly walk past the opportunity that you have to come back to the Lord, because you cannot presume that He is always near or that you're always this near to Him. You cannot presume that He will always be uh, attentive to you because you may not be even led to call on Him. And He says in this passage, you need to come. And then He says you need to repent. This is something that's easy to overlook in our lives and it's foundational to where we're going here. Because his text gets really good. But here, God is calling us to repent. And can we notice in the passage here what that is? Repentance is not remorse. Repentance is not feeling bad about our sin. Repentance isn't kind of kicking ourselves because we did it again and snapping our fingers and saying, oh man, I stumbled again. Repentance isn't just a bad feeling after we do something or after we get caught doing something. Repentance isn't remorse, ladies and gentlemen. Repentance is a turning. Repentance is a forsaking. Repentance is feeling bad enough to change our behavior. It's a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. And what God is calling his people here to is a forsaking. Have you forsook anything recently? I've got a, a, a pair of shoes that I need to forsake. In fact, I decided last week to toss them. I haven't got around to it yet. I'm the kind of person, I just don't like throwing stuff away. Uh, I get holes in it. I wear it out. I just, I just think it's always good for one more wear. I just, my wife helps me with that sometimes, and I'm grateful to her sometimes. I, where were those pair of socks? You mean the ones with you know, the holes in three places? Yeah, that pair. Toby, you don't have them anymore. <laughs> they, went to, they went to sock heaven. We got rid of those. We need to get you some new ones. I've got these pair of shoes. I, I, I love them. I've worn them. They, every time I put them on, I, they hurt my feet because I got this part in the back that's, that's broken through. And I, I ran a, a race in them. And somebody sent me a picture uh, last week from 10 years ago. Like, hey, 10 years ago today. You ever have Google Photos or iPhone or something? It'll tell you, 10 years ago today. And I looked at it and 
Oh yeah, those are those shoes. <laughs> it's time to it's time to retire those. It's time to forsake those. I'm going to go home. I'm going to drop those in the trash can. I'm going to wheel that trash can out on Thursday night. Big green truck's going to come, and they're out of my life. Guess what? That's a forsaking. I'm not going to get them back. I'm not going to go digging through the trash bin trying to find them again. I'm going to get rid of those. They're going to be gone. And God calls us in our lives to remove some things as we come to Him, and He calls us. And he calls his people to repent. We see this incredible gift that God offers. We see the, the specific instructions, this call that he gave them as they come. And then we see finally the guarantee of the promises of God. And this is just the best part. Verse number eight, the Bible says, for, and I just want to stop there because we often read right past that. So when I read for, you can kind of think, because. In fact, this exact word is sometimes translated because. This is why the previous command is given or is possible. This is why. For this reason or because of this truth. What have we just been called to do? What have we been called to call, to seek, to call, and to forsake? Why? Why should we do those things? Here's why. Verse number eight. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways Neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. How many of you, that's the first time you've ever heard that verse? No, probably no one in the room. But do you realize what the context of that verse is? It's talking about God's ability to forgive us. It's talking about his mercy. How many of you think God, God's ways are higher than your ways, his thoughts are higher than your thoughts, his works are higher than your, your, our works? We know that, right? Guess what? God doesn't forgive like you and I forgive. It's totally different. See, you and I forgive, but very imperfectly. You remember the disciples having this conversation with Jesus? Hey, Jesus, how often should we forgive someone? And Peter thought he was being real generous. He was like, should we do it seven times? Now we think, oh, Peter, good night, Peter, seven times. But guess what? Seven times is a lot of times. I was thinking this morning, and I was, if I pull in the parking lot out here by our offices, I pull right next to uh, Brother Bert's uh, Hyundai, what is that, and Elantra, if I pull right next to that Elantra, and I uh, grab my bag and I open the door and go, bam! Oh. Get out, I look, side of the car, sure enough, there's one of those big, like, sideways white smiley faces that happens when you, don't ask me how I know this is what it looks like. <laughs> I have kids. I'm like, oh, sting. Man, I'm going to do the right thing. We're going to go find Brother Bert. Hey, Brother Bert, I nailed your car this morning. I got out. Bam! I didn't even see it. It's got a big, nasty mark on the paint. I'm so sorry. Want me to pay for it? What can I do? Brother Bert's a good Christian. He might say, you know what? Hey, it's, it's, it's all right. It's not the first one. Uh, the kind of tight parking spots out there. I know you'll be more careful in the future. Don't worry about it. Thanks. Appreciate it. Tomorrow pull up next to his car, bam, oh, stink. <laughs> Other side now. <laughs> Got to talk to him, hey, 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 man, Dr. Burt, man, I parked next to your car again. Like, Are you kidding me? I'm not going to take your time. Imagine this happening seven times in a row. How many of you think if he's, see, if he's still forgiving me seven times later, yeah, Peter's, Peter's being generous here. Peter's trying to, hey, Lord, should I forgive seven times? Like the same thing seven times. I knocked the mirror off one time. I 
poke a hole in the brake light one time. I dinged the door five times. I'm like, man, he's still forgiving me. That's pretty incredible, right? What was Jesus' answer? 70 times 7. Hey, here's a clue. <laughs> if you get to forgiveness event number, 400, number uh, 485 and you're still counting, you're doing it wrong. Okay? <laughs> this, is, uh, this is something where Jesus is saying, not keep really good accounts of how many times you're forgiving. Jesus is saying, hey, you need to up your forgiveness. Make it a little bit more like me. How many of you think, how many of you think if I dinged his car, Brother Bert would probably forgive me? I think, he, I think he would. I'm going to be careful not to, but I think he would. How many of you think he'd feel still a little bit frustrated as he forgave me? <laughs> right? I, I would. If he came up and said, hey, hey tell me, man, I, I dinged your car. It's got this big mark on it. I'd forgive you. I, I wouldn't ask for any money. It's not, it's not that new of a paint job anyway, but I, I'd, be, I'd, I'd be a little bit bummed about it. If you do it again, I'd forgive you again, but I'd be frustrated about it. You knock the mirror off the side of my car, I might accept a little bit to replace that. I'd be honest. I, I just might do that. I'm willing to forgive, but I'm like, stink, man, that man. Right? God's ways are not like your ways, though. God's thoughts are not like your thoughts. How many of you have thought stuff you haven't said? You're glad you didn't say it. You almost did. You didn't say it, but you thought it. Like when you're forgiving someone, particularly. You think some stuff. You may not say it, but God says, that's not what I'm thinking. That's not my way. That's not how I work. The reason the wicked can come, the we reason you should seek me, the reason you should buy from me with no money, the reason you should uh, come and return to uh, me is because my ways aren't like your ways, and my thoughts aren't like your thoughts, and my works aren't like your thoughts. They're higher. They're beyond. We're distinct. And here's what I realize. A lot of times, I'll, if I'm not careful, I'll fail to come to God in repentance because I think he forgives like I forgive. I don't want to frustrate him. I don't want to aggravate him. I don't want him to be uh, like begrudgingly forgiving me again. No, but that's not how God works. Look at verse number nine. For as the heavens are higher than the earth. Oh my goodness. I don't know how much better at forgiving you think Brother Burt would be than you are. I don't know how much better at forgiving you think you are than somebody else. <laughs> We're talking about the difference between God and you. And what's the difference? Like the difference between heaven and earth. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. God has an unlimited, bountiful, ungrudging, gracious forgiveness for all who come and seek. Now, he told us to forsake, right? He's concerned about sin, but he wants to forgive. He longs to forgive. He desires to forgive as only he can. We see a guarantee here from his ways. We see secondly his word. Verse number 11, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but shall accomplish that which I pleased, and it shall prosper in the things whereunto I send it. We are privileged here in the valley, and it goes on, verse number 12, it says, For ye shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills shall uh, break forth 
I missed a verse. There it is, verse number 10. It was right before. It talks about the rain. For the, as the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth in bud, it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. What's the rain like? Stay with the passage. What's the rain? The rain. This, God's talking about forgiving the sinner, right? God's talking about his ways being higher than ours. Why should we come? Because his ways are higher than ours. Why? Because his, his forgiveness is like the rain. It goes and it doesn't come again. You ever seen raindrops flying up? You ever seen snow going up? I've seen it go sideways before. In the Midwest it does that, doesn't it? But it doesn't go up. When God sends the rain down, he doesn't call it back. I know evaporation water cycle. That's not what he's talking about here. He doesn't call the rain back from the earth. What does the rain do? The rain accomplishes what he sent it for. What an incredible place to live to see this happen. How many of you saw the poppies this year? Any of you see? How many went on the trip and saw the poppies? Some of you went out there? We were out there last weekend, my family and I. The desert is orange. It's incredible. My son was wearing a, a workout shirt, a, like a nylon type thing, bright orange. Sometimes they're really fluorescent. I told Bennett, hey, don't fall down in the desert. We'll never find you again. You look just like the desert. And it was just about the same color. It's just incredible. I've got pictures. I don't, don't have them on the screen. It's unbelievable. The desert's green. It looks like you could graze cows out there. It's just incredible. Why? Because we've gotten a lot of rain this year. And when the desert gets rain, it sprouts, and you get plants and grass and flowers of all kinds and colors and heights. It's incredible. God says, hey, my mercy can do that in your heart. If you're dead, if you're parched, if you're fallow, the Bible says, hey, come to me, seek me, forsake your ways, and come, and I will forgive without grudging. I will, like rain coming down from heaven, transform your life and transform your heart. It's not a surface thing. It's a deep change from the inside. It's growth that comes from you because of God's mercy and grace and a right relationship with him. This is God's promise. And then he says, my word is like that. My word, it doesn't only refer to canonical scripture. It's the proclamation of God, the truth of God. Certainly it includes the Bible. By the way, that's why we teach and practice exegetical preaching. And we're focused on preaching the word. What are you going to preach? The word. <laughs> that's what we're commanded to preach, right? Preach the word. Not your opinion and your outline. Or your... This is where the authority comes from, right here. This is the word and god says my word will not return void uh, this morning of my sister and her four children and, hus and uh, husband who are now beginning their second month in indonesia as missionaries just on the field working on the language they met a muslim lady last week had the whole family over to the house why would you go to a muslim country with a very low gdp and a high risk of potential violence against christians here's why because god promises his word won't return void it will accomplish that which he sends it it will always bring forth a fruit and here at the end i love this i call this the reverse of the curse the reverse of the curse look at it for you'll go out in joy and be led forth with peace and the mountains and the hills shall break forth before you into singing and the trees of the field shall clap their hands instead of the thorn shall come up the fir tree instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle and it shall be to the Lord for a name for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off I know it's not December it's not even close to Thanksgiving but you know the song joy to the world you know the words to that song, joy to the earth? 
The Savior reigns, let men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains resound, repeat their sounding joy. No more let sin and sorrows grow, no thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow. Do you know the next verse, the next phrase? Far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. That's the fulfillment of Isaiah 55. It's the complete culmination of all that God has promised. It's the utter forgiveness of all that was wrong, the complete restoration of anything that is broken, the whole restoring and reviving and rejuvenating of the creation that has fallen and marred by sin. And it begins for you and I with a call. A call to come. A call to seek. A call to repent. And a call to find in Him the only thing that will satisfy.